Thank you all. If you are able, I invite you to rise in body or spirit as you are able. As I read the scripture lesson this morning, it's from 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, continuing at verse 18, which is where we left off last week, reading through verse 31. The Apostle Paul writing to those Christians at the church at Corinth. For the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning, I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, God decided through the foolishness of our proclamation to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks desire wisdom, but we proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom and God's weakness is stronger than human strength Consider your own call, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, things that are not, to reduce things that are, so that no one might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, in order that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Here ends the reading, may God grant us wisdom and courage for interpretation and understanding. Amen. Please be seated. There are defining moments that come every now and then in life when we have to make painful choices about what we will hold on to and what we will let go of. Those defining moments do not just apply to us at the individual level, but they also come along for nations and for groups of people, and ours is no exception. On the night of January 7th, Tyree Nichols was returning home from a suburban park where he had taken photos of the sunset, according to his family's attorneys. And on the way home, he was pulled over for the suspicion of reckless driving, according to the Memphis, Tennessee Police Department. And as officers approached Nichols to arrest him, some sort of confrontation occurred, and Nichols attempted to run away on foot. The disturbing videos and images show the unarmed Nichols being kicked and punched 
in the head while he was already restrained. And, and while restrained, he was pepper strayed and struck continually. Then he was struck in the face multiple times until the blows made him collapse. As somewhere amidst all the conflict, it was reported that he called for his mother repeatedly because it appears also he was trying to run on foot towards her home, which was nearby. After Nichols was taken into custody, he complained of shortness of breath, and so he was taken to the hospital where he would die due to the injuries he sustained a few days later. Now, to the city of Memphis's credit, all five Memphis police officers were determined to be directly responsible for the physical abuse of Mr. Nichols, and they were fired on January 20th. And on January the 26th, all were indicted on charges of second-degree murder, aggravated assault, kidnapping, and official misconduct and official mis uh, oppression. And so Memphis is taking other steps, it appears, to audit the systems they use to police their city. But the fact remains, and the questions linger and here, there, and in so many places about our culture, not just police culture, but about our society's culture, and how in the world we're ever going to get past where we seem to be in gridlock. True wisdom and understanding, according to Paul, is knowing what to let go of and what to hold on to, knowing what is wisdom and what is foolishness. There are some amazing and even incredible police officers all over this country, and some even connected to our congregation. I know them off the top of my head. You probably know others. And if their body cameras footage off of a normal day were released to the public, we would be overwhelmed by all the amazingly good things that they do to serve on a daily basis and the sacrifices that they make. Wisdom means being able to affirm the positive contributions of so many good police officers while also taking a hard look at systems, at training, at the culture, both not just in the police departments, but in the culture of our own community and why we've chosen to live such a violent existence. Are there some parts of the system that need reform, we ask? It also means, are there things within our society at large, not just in police culture, but within us as a people, which lead to the senseless deaths of individuals like Tyree Nichols? And so we must choose wisely which things to hold on to and which things to let go of as we seek more peaceful ways of existing together. And contrary to what political voices on the broad extremes of our culture say, it is both possible to value the lives of police officers as well as the lives of black citizens and all of our citizens. At the same time, we must hold on to that love. What will we hold on to? What will we let go of? Foolishness and wisdom require a faithful response. And the Apostle Paul is writing to a divided church about foolishness and wisdom, about what they should be holding on to tightly and about what they should be willing to negotiate or let go of immediately. And some of these divisions he's addressing appear to be caused by different views on which 
pastor or teacher they've had and who was more helpful or eloquent. And, and Paul admits uh, no gifts and eloquence in his letter. And if you've read the epistles of Paul, then you know he's quite capable of writing sentences that doubled back on themselves before doubling back again, leaving you to reread them and saying, what in the world was he really trying to say? I think he was, had a sense of humor even with himself a little bit here as he admits that. And in response to these divisions in the church, Paul brings in Isaiah, a much more eloquent voice than his, to remind the Corinthians that God has often been in the business of confounding the wise while stopping the tongues of the eloquent in order to teach what God's wisdom really looks like, to subvert wisdom and power in order to offer a godly kind of wisdom and power. Now, these verses, if we're not careful, as they often have been, have been misapplied, misinterpreted, and even abused in an effort to kind of go into a diatribe against learning and education and knowledge by suggesting that Paul is offering us a doctrine of what we might call know-nothingism, celebrating blissful ignorance of sorts, celebrating perhaps the mind that is closed and empty and narrow. We have seen a renewal of interest in the dumbing down of our society in recent years. There's a movement afoot to silence much information from being taught. If it makes anybody feel uncomfortable, we shouldn't teach it, even if it's just history. So there's an effort to censor books and school boards are being infiltrated by activists of every stripe and all the while public education is being funneled into ways of funding private institutions where these tactics can be the norm and sadly under the guise many times of Christian education. But friends, God did not create our heads and our hearts in order for them to wage a lifelong battle against one another. God is never threatened by history or knowledge, whether it be scientific or historical or otherwise. God's got big shoulders. God can handle it. And God's wisdom has never asked that a book be burned or that an image be destroyed. And God is not the one battling wisdom. God, through Christ, offers us another kind of wisdom, the wisdom that is deep and true, the wisdom that is not concerned with appearance or affiliation or association or partisanship. The wisdom that is not wise is the kind that points to self, the kind of that wisdom that seeks to humiliate the other. Ha, 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 beat you, I owned you. The clickbait that we see. So-and-so destroys so-and-so. That kind of wisdom is ignorance that seeks to humiliate one another, that treats knowledge and information as a weapon to be used, given or taken away, depending on whether it helps someone's argument. God, through Christ, is offering us true wisdom. True wisdom can be handled by the young, 
True wisdom can be handled by the weak and the poor and the disaffiliated and the disenfranchised and the unconnected and the invisible ones on the margins that we miss. In fact, the very wisdom of God came to us in a person, weak and poor and uninfluential and disconnected from the powers that be. An unlikely one, not only to teach us the wisdom, but to embody God's wisdom for us too. Paul declares, if you understand, if you desire rather to understand God's wisdom, do not be overly concerned with the eloquence of the speaker, but more concerned with the content of what they have to say. Folks, it seems, have always tended to gravitate towards flashy presentations. Loud, hey, if it's said more loudly, it must be more true. If we got a PowerPoint, if we got, you know, cool movie clips, that is what makes a great sermon. The real question should always be, have they proclaimed Jesus and him crucified? And in the life of the crucified Christ, all things are redefined. All wisdom is shown to be simple. All power is shown to be weak. All life that runs from death is shown to be fleeting. Jesus' life is given on the cross, not because God rages against God, but because God is no longer willing for false wisdom and false power to have the final say. Now that statement is not easily taken in. Breathe for just a minute. Marinate on that for just a minute. In order for that teaching to find room inside of us, false and destructive and distracting things sometimes have to be let go so that we can hold on to the one who holds all things and to the kind of wisdom that God really desires for us. On January the 29th in 1430, of this common era. We believe the monk and icon writer Andrei Rublev died. In fact, today marks his five, the 593rd anniversary of his death. This Russian writer of icons is considered one of the masters of the icon tradition within the Christian faith. A copy of Rublev's most famous icon called the Trinity is considered one of the most important in Christian iconography. I have it for you. I got it to our fellows in the booth late, but hopefully it'll appear on the screens now if you've never seen this. There it is. See? Flashy presentation pictures. Now look at it for a minute. In the Eastern Church, this icon is called the Hospitality of Abraham, recognizing that Rublev, the author here, is first depicting the visit of the three angels to Abraham and Sarah in Genesis chapter 18. And, and these angels have come with the foolish news that Sarah is to have a child even though she's way old. Their news, of course, causes Sarah to laugh. What foolishness! 
Now, in the image of these foolish messengers, Rublev invites us to dwell with the story, to catch a glimpse of the God who is three and one, the God who comes to us when we believe our life is at an end only to hear God from God that new life is emerging. And so in this image of Trinity, we see a community surrounding a table with a chalice at the center no one grasping for control or power over it, but offering one another equally expressions of grace, mercy, love, and humble service to one another. Here is our wisdom, friends. Now, several commentators on this icon have noted that the icon does not allow you to rest your eye on any one place. Rather, this is an image in motion with a circle, inviting us to move from one to the other to the next. And so God's wisdom is made known to us by sitting with wisdom. God's wisdom is made known to us by following the wisdom that moves and which moves us. And Rublev gives his angels wings golden wings but instead of hovering over the table the angels sit remaining grounded in this world refusing to taunt us with flight now here's how i think this relates to our topic today and thank you max for having that for us god's wisdom has wings and understands all languages, yet in the person of Jesus, God's wisdom is willing to be mocked, willing to be shamed and understood as foolishness. God's wisdom is willing to take the blows of violent power and the slurs of arrogant wisdom in order to make clear that the things of violence and arrogance will not last. But what will last is the foolish proclamation that power can actually serve. And wisdom can be found in the streets, in the desert, in the cave, in the cell, and in the heart of the most unlikely disconnected, disaffected person. God's wisdom has wings and understands all languages, yet in the person of Jesus we're invited in with our stammering tongues, our backs without wings, to sit with the teachings of Jesus, to allow them to break us out of the domesticated safeness of a Beatitudes refrigerator magnet theology, to pray through them and see what foolish things they just might say to us, and then to decide whether or not to follow such foolishness on the way to wisdom. Blessed are those who seek after God's foolishness and what appears to be God's weakness, for there we shall find wisdom and redemption. There we shall find ourselves odd, but fully alive. This is the wisdom and foolishness Paul is saying of how people perceive the cross. Verse 22, he said, For Jews demand signs and Greeks desire wisdom, but we proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God 
and the wisdom of God. I ask you today, friends, what if like the Jewish Christians and the Greek early Christians, we've gotten part of the cross right? We've admired the incredible commitment of Jesus in following his passion for God's new program, God's dream for the world, all the way through, even unto death on a cross. But there's been a trend, and it's really a fairly new trend, these last 150 to 200 years, mostly in evangelical Christian circles, that has tended to personalize the cross and make the cross mainly about individualized salvation. A concept, by the way, nearly absent within Eastern Christianity. I believe we are right to admire Jesus' incredible love and thank God for the gift of salvation, even at an individual level, and especially viewing the commitment, ultimate commitment, even to death on a cross that Jesus made. But what if seeing the cross as something Jesus just did one time is not where we're supposed to stop and spend all of our spiritual energy and focus I think that's probably the case, and I think that's probably why Jesus said to his would-be disciples, take up your cross and follow me. He, he wasn't necessarily suggesting we literally die as martyrs alongside him so much as that we imitate his incredible commitment, his incredible passion, his incredible dream about God's love, God's new program, for the world, with every fiber of our being, as he did. Maybe we need to let go of the idea that the cross was a one and done and hold on more dearly to the idea that the cross is very much a calling and should be our way of living on a daily basis as Christians today. Paul was saying that early Christians of Jewish descent, they tended to overemphasize signs and wonders. And so they were missing part of God's wisdom on the cross as a result. Paul was also saying early Christians of Greek descent, Gentiles, tended to overvalue you know, eloquence of speech and fleshy presentations by their teachers. You know, the ones that sounded really smart. Paul reminded them. He was saying the cross would never fit neatly into either one of those boxes because it wasn't their kind of wisdom. It was God's kind of wisdom. And Paul is reminding us too, I think, the cross is so much more than just a singular one and done payment for personal transgressions. The cross is what we are called to live and to imitate on a daily basis to our own commitment to God's dream, God's program, God's kingdom, God's way of true wisdom for the ways this world should operate together and relate to one another. So let us let go of the need to make, take the cross to make it more about our personal gains and rewards, and let us hold on to the cross as the road marker that points us towards an entire lifelong journey of daily humility and service and tremendous sacrifice for others until one day our lives and ministries are also complete. Paul is saying we need not make the cross about bringing ourselves to heaven so much as about bringing heaven to earth while we're here. That seems like foolishness for the wisdom we've learned to think about, but it is God's wisdom 
to those with eyes and ears to see and hear. Amen.